Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. In this episode, we're joined by Darius Marder, director of the multi-Oscar-nominated film Sound of Metal. In a fascinating discussion, Darius talks to fellow director Beban Kidron about what he would and wouldn't compromise on, collaborating with Riz Ahmed, and nailing a rare and formidable sense of first-person perspective. We hope you enjoy it. We are all agreed it's fantastic, and uh, and it was indeed Darius such a fantastic film. So so you have you you have conquered uh, you've conquered London in the form of us lot here, um, <laughs> and I can't wait to have questions uh, from the audience. But I actually get the privilege of asking you some questions first, and so I'm actually going to ask you a little bit about your history, and then go into some thematics about the film. And then maybe some very particular things uh, just around the question of deafness and some technical things about the movie, because our audience today is made up of directors and there is nothing that they like better, we like better than hearing actually about some of the problems and some of the solutions you came to. So I'm going to start actually just, you know, this is your first film as director director um so maybe you can do a little bit of a how, how did you how did you get to this point what what were you up to all this time why have you made us wait this long well it's my first fiction film as a director fiction I, film, sorry. Yeah, um and i even say i don't say first narrative film i always think it's interesting that people don't call documentaries narrative because indeed they are um the yes so that's a good question i think that I think my road has been a bit circuitous um, in so far. I, I don't really know how everyone else is making movies. It's not easy. Um, it's not like you just are allowed to do it. I started dreaming of, you know, and I think it bears mentioning, especially in the United States, it's you, you don't get like, there's no government money for anything. You know, you have to, you have to somehow manage to thread this needle of getting financing and doing this. And it's just damned hard. Um, uh, I, my road has been definitely unusual. Um, I, you know, I didn't, I don't come from any kind of film background. I didn't go to school. I was a bit of a renegade kid, you know, and, and I, I, I kind of had this idea that rather than go to college. I, in those days, I, I had a lot of attitude about college. I didn't want to be babysat. I just wanted some something that felt real. So I kind of, I was in a very dark place in life. Um, when I say dark, I was just, I was lost. Uh, there was it, the darkness of teen years and, you know, traveling very kind of Carlos Castaneda and Holden, Holden Caulfield kind of, you know, out in the desert and just trying to find something that felt real, but also dealing with some real issues. And I say that because I think a lot of it actually came back into this script. Um, but I, I, I was actually contacted as a teenager by my seventh and eighth grade writing teacher who was that one teacher for me, you know, I wasn't, I, who was that one teacher that kind of brought me into a, into an elevated writing group. And she called me at a very difficult moment. And she said, would you like to come teach with me? And, and it, it really struck me. And I went and taught with, I went and taught at first with her. I taught for four years, seventh and eighth grade, which, which is 13 and 12 and 13 year olds. Um, and, teaching them 
was really important to kind of opening up the channels of my own relationship to my own writing. Um, and a lot of the healing that occurred and kind of ushering me into adulthood was through children, which again, shows up in this script. So there's, there's some interesting things that, that I found myself mining even unconsciously as I ended up writing. But then I had children early and I won't be too long-winded, but we have time, don't we, Bina? We have a little time. <laughs> okay, we have a little, that was a little bit like, we have time, but hurry the hell. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, so, so I, um, so I had kids early and, and then I'm in Brooklyn with uninsured children. I ended up doing a lot of, I was a personal chef in New York for years, just trying to pay the bills. And then I was a food stylist, which is a job. Um, <laughs> I, and, um, and then at one point I kind of, and the whole time I was writing scripts and just trying to think like, how the hell does someone make a movie, you know? Um, and I was, at, I had kind of given myself this whole film education and everything, but really that 20 years from age 20 to 40 was this incredible hustle. And this script and this story was, took 12 years to make. So it ate up a huge chunk of my adult life. And I'm, I'm glad for that. You know, I think it, it, the film is what it is because of that. But that's a, there's a lot to say about that road to finally making a film, but mine was certainly unusual. Yeah, no, it, it, it was. And I, it's really curious, some of, the, some of the things that have shown up in the film that you've already mentioned. One of the things that I was wondering was about uh, Place Beyond the Pines, which is something that you wrote right and that has some curious that has a feeling like it comes from that same journey as well do you see the do you see that as a step on the way do you see that as a totally separate experience how does that fit in that that next piece of narrative really important step yeah i i you know i never was interested in writing just to write you know writing screenplays is so is so interesting as you know just screenplays are blueprints for something else. They're not really a product unto themselves. And I always was in the game to direct. I didn't, I, I never was writing just to write um, for other people. It's not, I can't even do it. I can't, I can't do it. I need to be making my own films and writing for a film I'm gonna make uh, myself. But I, when I met Derek C in France who made Place Beyond the Pines, he and I had such a palpable connection and a real creative kind of overlap around where truth and fiction, the, the, the line is. And we were, we were, I was working on this documentary Lude at the time, which is a highly narrative doc. And he was working on this other doc. And this was 13 years ago when I met Derek. Mm -hmm. And that doc is actually the seed of what became sound of metal. So we'll get back to that. But a couple years later, I had committed in this ridiculous way to only writing or directing. I decided, I made a rule for myself in my life that I would stop. I had already stopped chefing and food styling, but at this point I was making my living as an editor. And I decided I have to stop that too, because it, the thing about these various jobs is they get, you can get comfortable in them. And I again found myself, I, I loved editing, but I can't make other people's movies. And 
um, that was really clear to me. So I actually stopped editing and I told everyone I wouldn't edit. And I was showing up in an empty room and writing and mm-hmm. writing every day. And it was super lonely, super hard. But one of the things I would do when I dropped my kids off for school is Derek and I would go have coffee and talk about film. And that led to discussions around Place Beyond the Pines. And eventually I ended up writing it with him. And it was so important because he and I share so much kind of cinematic energy together. We didn't really write as anyone being subordinate. We were just two directors, writers, you know, beating the shit out of each other. And, and you know, really trying to find the heart of a bra- very brave movie. And uh, it was just an incredibly exciting time and also really fed what ended up being a, a lot of the Sound of Metal process. So I have part of my brain is sitting here worrying about your uninsured children while you're in this room. But well, the, you the, <laughs> as well you should. <laughs> <laughs> but the bit that I actually want to pick up on there is 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 this working with friends thing, working with almost comrades. And I'm going to come to the, the sort of the, the act a bit of that later. But, but it is interesting, that description you've just given us, because you, you then go on to work with another friend and then you work with your brother. And, and what does it mean to work in a, you know, w- what is that about? Is it, is it about process? Is it about comfort is about not going crazy what what's that about why do you need that particular thing or or maybe i've got that wrong well i think i think the word need is not necessarily the word but want or why it's right for a certain product why it's right for a certain film maybe not another film Mm. but i do find you know i particularly for me and everybody has a different process and they're all right but I really like engaging with people when I work. I really like the, the you know, yes, you sit down in a room, ass in the seat, empty room and deal. And writing has a lot to do with that. But I find so much comes from those little weird moments, those ineffable kind of um, firings of things that happen and can only happen with other humans. So I'm a bit of a nomadic writer anyway. I, I actually write a lot in London and, and I really enjoy that city for writing and walking and talking and then writing. But when it comes to working with friends, it's, it's, yeah, it's never just anybody. It has to be this really right kind of energy that often I find is about, um, you know, allowance and joy, you know, my writing process with Derek or with my brother, um, the really like alive process, a lot of cooking, a lot of walking and arguing and laugh, ton of laughing. And, you know, so it's a lot of kind of, uh, a lot of movement and, um, and it is heuristic, you know, it become, you become greater than the sum of your parts when you, when you have that special kind of energy. Um, and it's exciting, you know, and I think that can have, I think there is a moment to, for me, I find that even no matter who I'm writing with, there's a moment when you have to kind of move out of that and just go into a lone world, you know, but it's something about the, the give and take, at least, at least for me. Okay, so tell us a little bit. I want to turn to the film itself, but I do want you to just sort of explain for anyone who doesn't know, 
the role of the, the documentary and then how it sort of transformed over time into a whole different project with you at the helm and it's the one really interesting. it's really weird i mean i haven't heard of it happening like this so it's kind of and i and i and i'm so i love it because it's it's the very thing i was just talking about it's the way that kind of this began with a conversation. We were, Derek and I were actually talking about this movie. It wasn't this movie yet, but the seed that would become this movie within like two minutes of meeting each other 13 years ago. And, uh, and I just loved it. I just loved what Derek was doing. He was, he's such a wonderful filmmaker. He has such a, an alive mind. And he was, he was out there on the road filming this band, Jucifer. And Jucifer is they're still touring. Yeah, they're an amazing um, metal band and they're made up of a man and a woman. And Derek had been a metal drummer himself and had dealt with hearing loss. So that's what kind of drove him to kind of suss out this story. And the way he was doing it is he was shooting, there was no script, but he was adding this kind of, um, it was a bit of a hybrid movie. So he was bringing the narrative element of deafness into these real bands world and and just kind of riffing on it um, and putting them in situations and seeing what arose. And that's a testament to Derek's bravery as a filmmaker. You know, he's really after trying to find a seed of something real. And the footage reflected that. It was, it was really, really beautiful. And there was just so much uh, truth in it because they were a real band and yet it didn't have necessarily a complete structure, you know, because it wasn't scripted. Um, but it, but it did have some structure and then it became clear. So I ended up taking that footage and editing it. Um, and just, and I sat with it for months in my office, just working with the footage, just for the pure love of it. You know, I just loved it. It wasn't about any kind of role or even ownership or anything. I just enjoyed it. And in that time, I kind of stumbled editorially on this idea of point of hearing, which is, which I'm, I'm calling point of hearing, which is this you know, not point of view, but you're, you're, you're watching through someone's ears, essentially listening through someone's ears. And so I started playing with that in a really lo-fi way 12 years ago. Um, and that got something going in my brain that I couldn't let go of. Um, and I knew I couldn't fulfill within that, the construct of that film. Um, and then Derek got, and Blue Valentine came into Derek's life and he said to me one day, he's like, man, I'm never going to, I'm never going to make that movie. I know I'm never going to finish that movie. Do you want to finish the doc? And I said, no, I don't want to finish the doc. I, I do. I want to write this thing. I have to write this thing. And so, you know, we, we wrestled around with that idea for a little while. And then he, as he said, he gave his child up for adoption, you know, um, and, I adopted it and I started that long writing process, which went on for a while before I invited my brother in. It's, I mean, it is an amazing story and it, it sort of is amazing in exactly the way you say that more than one person can bring up a child, you know, and you have to give, you have to give credit to all parties because yeah. often it does take more, you know, it does take more than two. It's so, a <laughs> um, uh, so I, I really wanted to ask you, and this may seem like a very stupid question, but um, <laughs> is, you know, is what is the film about? And what I mean by that is that, you know, on the surface, maybe it's about 
death, maybe it's about, you know, addiction, but actually there's such a complex kind of thing about alienation and loneliness and, and learning and teaching. And there seems to be so many things. And I just wanted to hear it from your voice. If someone says, what's it about? Not what the story is, but, but what, what was that piece of cloth that you were put in front of us? Hmm. Well, if someone asked me that, I'd say, yeah, I'd turn it back on them almost invariably, but I get the spirit of your question. Um, yeah, I mean, what was really exciting for me and my brother when we were writing is to make a film that kind of disarmed you. So you, you being the viewer would go into this film pretty sure of what you were about to watch. Um, you know, maybe you, maybe you knew it was going to be a film where someone was losing their hearing, or you certainly knew it was going to be a film that involved, you know, music, metal even. And that was important to disarm with the title of the movie, Sound of Metal, because there is a element of this movie that I'm really interested in, which is about peeling back the layers of expectation. Um, the, the layers within us as viewers, not just with the character. And the reason that I make that distinction is because the movie is, is dogmatically putting you in a first person perspective. And that's really rare in films. That doesn't happen every day. Usually, you know, films generally cross cut, you know, and I'm not trying to be professor, professorial here. I, everybody knows this, but I say it because it's interesting that sometimes we take for granted that, you know, a dogmatically first person perspective is just not very common. And the reason it's not very common is it's damn hard. Uh, it's, it's nice to have a B plot to cut away to. Um, but if you're going to have a first person perspective, you have to have it. You know, you don't, it's not something you just, you just kind of cut, use every so often. But what, what is, I, what is exciting about having that committed perspective is that it can give way to actually audiences merging with a character into actual experience rather than, you know, what I think about is like Morgan Freeman telling you about the penguins, you know, rather than that thing there where you sit back and just go, yeah, you actually have to go, oh, I'm kind of in this, I feel this. Um, it can be uncomfortable. But the upside of that discomfort and that feeling of kind of visceral involvement is that we become involved thematically in the movie. Our expectations are Ruben's expectations, are the main character's expectations. Our kind of denial is Ruben's denial or Ruben's denial becomes our denial. And we have to actually start to engage in that process in our own selves. And so, because the movie is about letting go. The movie is about letting go. And that's not interesting unless we have to let go also. Yeah. That's, that, that's a fantastic um, explanation. And I think that one of the things that I was really interested in, I mean, so much has been written about the sound and, and, and I do want to ask you about the sound and uh, the presence and absence of sound. But I think the thing that struck me was in the first scene was that it was between the two of them. Oh, great. You know? yeah. I mean, how extraordinary. You were so denying me the view that I thought I was going to get 
it was a bit of a you had me at hello moment actually because because in that scene i i recognized the 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 there was something very um there was something very disciplined and there was something also quite demanding and and i just wonder whether you think that we've as an audience we've got a bit lazy and you were prepared to challenge us to say you are are going to see exactly my way and you're going to have to make up all the missing bits. You're going to have to do some work here of of both coming on my journey, but also, you know, imagining some things that you might need to tell your own story around this. Is, is that, was that a conscious thing or is that just how I hit the movie? No, I, I it's one of the, the really great questions I've ever gotten about the movie, Vivian, the way you describe that and it's really an, an an honor to get the question framed that way frankly um and be, because it's so on purpose and so disciplined and and yet it it sometimes does sometimes people don't understand it however i think they feel it even if they don't understand it um so yeah to speak to that um there's a very very disciplined language editorially cinematically um, sonically in the movie. And, mm-hmm. and it's, again, that, that process of disarming. So the one place I'll push back with you on is about, you know, as a, as a filmmaker or a storyteller, there is a little bit of that, yes, you are going to have to, but what I'm really interested in is why do we want to, you know, because that I, I maybe it's my years of editing, but I'm fascinated in the process of what is it about? Why do we lean into a movie? Mm. Why do we want to see what happens next? I'm 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 kind of obsessed with this idea, mm. and I think I think everybody you know when we focus on the craft of filmmaking, everybody producers, directors, writers, they all think about you know wanting to grab an audience, you know wanting to to kind of, you know, harness the attention of an audience. However, in wanting to do that, we frequently lose the audience and we don't understand why. Like an action film or, or any kind of film that like plasters the film with music, say, or, or narration or anything like this, this is grabbing an audience. It's telling an audience what to feel or telling an audience what the film's about. But what happens when you do that is an audience doesn't lean forward, they lean back. Yeah. because they're they're taken care of. Yeah. There's so we I think story is so deep in the fiber of who we are and our and you know as as humans, so deep, deeper than anything and everything that we just desperate if it's told in a specific way, we have muscles we will engage mm-hmm. if needed. And the engaging of those muscles actually feels good mm-hmm. because we want to know more if we aren't necessarily told. Um, if we're shown. And so that's a language that's really exciting to me. And setting the tone of that is the first concert. So sound of metal, that's the first thing you hear. You hear the sound of metal. You hear it before you see an image. The image you see lasts a little longer than it should on Ruben, but that's also telling you something. This is his story. And we're moving toward into him, actually. We're moving into him, into his perspective in that first shot. And it's his, it's his eyes that bring us to Lou. And that happens repeatedly through the film. And then we see Lou. Now, 
I, I was working with Danielle Bouquet, the cinematographer, on really committing to a language that didn't employ POV. You don't get Ruben's POV actually until the last scene in the movie. You get mm -hmm. you get his you get it once or twice, but you they're at very very specific moments. You get it once when he has a moment in a writing. Anyway, a lot of people haven't seen this film, so I won't go into it. But we don't employ. The you've seen the film, but a lot of people who may be listening haven't. I think that our audience will have probably seen the film already. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. So, sure. so the POV is only used in very judicious and on purpose moments. Generally, what we're doing is actually backing away from a POV to establish a language of this POH, this point of hearing, and and what and that's so that concert actually I thought of as you know. This is like a scene in a living room between a couple. Yeah. This is a scene where, yes, you are deprived of the cutaways the, of the camera showing you that Ruben's an amazing drummer and showing you his feet on the double bass pedals and showing you the, the, the crowd going like this. Because what's that? That's about this is a concert. That's not what that scene's about. That scene's about a codependent couple who's being kept alive on a high wire by this music by their connections, by, and so it's establishing this language, not just in the concert itself, which is, which is, which is, you know, I thought about with my editor Mickle about awakening the senses. That's about awakening the senses in us and working toward that hard cut right after, right in that concert when Ruben spits into the air, like an ejaculation, and then you get that hard cut into the airstream and it's like, it's all gone. And suddenly you realize, wait, that wasn't, that wasn't about the drama of the music. This is actually a language of how we use our ears in this movie because we're actually in a point of hearing almost immediately. We just don't know it. So, you know, that was a language that, you know, we're soup, I'm really excited by, but yes, it's, it's, it's maybe demanding and maybe slightly not demanding because possibly it, it's something we want to be in. That's that's the interesting kind of conversation. Uh, to, be, to be honest, it, it gets my greatest compliment of a movie, which is it's vertiginous. You know, it's sort of you know you're you're following the movement. You're you you know it's sort of visceral, and you don't actually have a choice. So you you know demanding not demanding, who cares? You have to go. So. You yeah, have to, and you're and you're in for the journey. Yeah, you're in for the journey. So, so I, I just want to ask one more very sort of overarching question about just sort of a thematic kind of approach question, which is, is really in your mind, you know, is there a sort of, is there a conscious desire that we see our weakness in Ruben, or that we understand, you know, those things that maybe are different from us in him, you know, um. I think I maybe know the answer to that, but I think it's more interesting to hear it from you. <laughs> did you did you find that to be true for yourself? Yeah, I think that's where the emotion lies. I think I, I think you sort of touched on it a little earlier when you said it's about letting go. So we all have different shit to let go, but we all have something to let go. And so sort of dealing with the, yes, I want to be better. I want to, you know, and having to reject it and, and all those differences that we're about to come to. Uh, I, I think I, I think that the emotion lies in my experience of my weakness seen through him. But but that's how I experienced it. Was is that part of the the absence presence that you're playing with in this movie? Yes, 
Definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely interested in that and, but not kind of, you know, I'm interested in it. I kind of feel like it really is about everybody watches movies differently and some people are able to enter into that place and some people have some walls up and that's okay. But I do think the movie demands a bit of that. It, 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 it is, that is the, you know, I was listening to something recently about Aristotle talking about tragedy and how we need tragedy so, so that we can play that out through story in order that we don't have to necessarily play it out in our lives. This is, this is a little bit of that, but it's also, it, it is this kind of canvas that people can bring their own emotion to and kind of, you know, cathartically live that out with and through Ruben. Um, and and I, I'm really interested in that. I'm really interested in the way that you can build a language in a movie where you kind of unwittingly find yourself processing something. Um, the test of that, I think, is when it lives in you a day or two or three later, and you find this kind of vibration, not necessarily the thought of it, but this this energy of it staying with you. And and that's that's that test. And I think some people have that and some people don't, but that's definitely, that definitely is the whole, uh, you know, the aspect of, of this film that almost interested me the most. Great. So I'm gonna just ask you a few things that, that always interest our particular crowd. So you made some interesting decisions about shooting on 35, about shooting chronologically. Um, and those are potentially, uh, limiting in the sense that we've already spent quite a lot of time talking about, but also liberating and demanding, um, expensive, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So, so in the balance, there were some things that really mattered to you, and I'm just interested, both kind of as a first-time director, but also just period as a director, how you came to those things and why you kind of held on to them. Uh, through what I bet was a few objections on the way. Yeah, yeah, there's plenty of objections. I mean, I kind of believe, you know, I think a lot of filmmaking is, is it's strangely not about the actors. You know, it's set up to be about everything else. Mm. And, uh, and yet, you know, and I don't think people necessarily always know that. And I was really interested in making it as hard as humanly possible for sure. Um, and a lot of these choices, yeah, they made it hard. They made it more expensive. They were arguments. They were really difficult to, to pass. And I can speak to each one of them. I mean, shooting chronologic. I think it, you, some part of the question you asked is, is the fact that this was my first fiction film. Maybe how, how why did I have those convictions so strongly? And I, I, I definitely have a background in acting, first of all. And I, I feel re I have, um, I've had the experience myself not not even through film, but just about acting process and what that is. And um, and I'm also, I also have just been studying and fixating on this for years. And interestingly, some of this, some of these convictions came through the process of making documentary work, which I think we often think of as a different muscle, but it, I don't think it is. I think that, um, you know, documentaries so often, you know, they're, they're like, when you shoot a documentary, you're, you're, you're taking something ostensibly true, you're raising a false construct of the camera, and then you're kind of ushering it back into a truth. Um, yeah. and, and that process of doing that 
you know, if you were to watch some documentaries get made where people go, you know, I'm really after truth. And they'll go into a room where there's true things happening and they'll go, okay, look, we're going to put some lighting over there. And if you guys could just step out over there and then walk, walk into the room and, you know, all of a sudden all truth is gone mm -hmm. and it's just been replaced by the construct of filmmaking. Um, and so I found in the process of making documentary, it was so much about, you know, entering into process that was actually about what you were doing, not about everything else. And, mm -hmm. And I found it very similar in making in fiction work where it's like, it's not about the rain machine. It's not about the mm -hmm. doll. It's really about the actors. It's about the life on the screen first and foremost. And every one of those choices had to do with that. Okay. That's really interesting, but I'm going to actually double down on this because I happen to know that, you know, you, you had a few key kind of murderous points where most people, in my experience, would have capitulated or compromised on something and you went, nah, doesn't matter, I'm seven years in, I'm 12 years in, I'm da -da -da. I'm not going to do it. So I'm thinking about, you know, the uninsured kids. I'm thinking about you've given up, you know, uh, making food look pretty, you're sitting in the room, you know, and, and you actually had a, a sort of a determination that is very rare now obviously that's why the film is so terrific and you know muzzled off but I'm just interested how that felt to you in those moments whether it was there was no other way than the way you saw it um or whether you know or whether there was some other part of your personality that was operating that got you through those moments uh to make the film exactly the way you wanted to make it yeah, I mean, you know, it's. It, it, I think everyone you talk to, who I worked with, and I, I think almost invariably will will tell you that I'm. I really am a, a very. I love working with people, so I and I really invite people's perspective, and I generally want to surround myself with people that make me better. So I, I wouldn't want to suggest that it's kind of like I'm not a my way or the highway kind of a director at all, um, but I I think that you know. A lot. What what directors do is they set a culture, they set the culture and the tone of a set, and you know once you start giving away your convictions in certain in in very key ways, that that will never stop. You know that becomes the culture, and so there was there were things that were not that were not going. I wasn't going to give up, um, and. I kind I think part of the reason the film took so long to make is kind of because of that, you know, that it, it, it almost got made quite a number of times, but I just wouldn't give up some things. And that actually began six or seven, eight years ago, even meeting the first actor I met would have immediately financed the film with probably twice the budget that I shot it with. Mm -hmm. And I said, no. And I said, no, because I didn't like the movie, you know, and having nothing to do with the, the actor, the actor, wonderful actor. I just didn't like that movie. I didn't want to make that movie. It wasn't exciting. And so I said, no. And, and that pissed off a lot of people and people thought I was crazy. And I did that a lot of times yeah. while, while in the process of casting, but it's, it's, it's wonderful what happens when you start to say no, because what you're really doing is you're saying yes to something that, is gonna come yeah. and and that can feel nuts at times. You feel like you're out there on the, 
Santa Maria on the, on the ocean looking for land, you know, and you don't know if it's there or coming. And it definitely feels like that in year seven, year eight, year nine, uh, and when your kids are uninsured and, um, and, and truly they, and they would tell you it's crazy making, but it's also galvanizing because you can, you know, when you know your, your limits, when you know the line, you know, I, I, I compromised a lot in the filming process. You have to, in many ways. And by compromise, I mean, I cut the script down by 20 pages before we shot. I made it shootable. I didn't shoot certain things because they were too expensive. You know, there were all sorts of ways that I made this movie makeable, mm -hmm. but I would not compromise actor process. I would not compromise shooting on film, uh, which made people nuts. Um, I, and there's reasons for that. It's not just, just because I like film grain. Um, and I, you know, I would not compromise on chronology because that's like one of the single most, uh, especially in this movie where you have hearing loss, where you have literal, you know, Riz was wearing ear sound blockers in his ears. And, you know, you don't go, you don't want to go one scene you're hearing the next scene you're not this scene. Oh, you know, ASL in this scene and this scene you don't. And, That'd be terrible for an actor. So I can tell you, if we were doing this in a room, you would have just got a huge cheer from everyone listening. I just want you to know that because, you know, consider that, uh, consider that everyone listening. Um, it's an audience of directors. We understand what that means. I, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about actors and a couple of bit about, about death because I'm beginning to get some good questions up here. So, and, and I'd like to go to those. I, you've, you, you just started talking about uh, Reese. Um, and Riz, uh, he put such a lot into this movie. And I want to know whether that was the deal or whether that was just what he brought. And I also want you to tell us a little bit about Paul's extraordinary story and, and just sort of what that meant to you in the heart of this film. Mm. Well, I think as far as Riz is concerned, it was the deal, but it's also what he brought. You know, you can lead a horse to water. Um, I think that, I think what's amazing is, you know, I had spoken with so many actors, uh, you know, embarrassingly, uh, the, the number of actors I'd spoken to and actually gotten deeply engaged in this movie with. Um, and I really, I really perceived the difference. Um, so when I finally met Riz, something very exciting happened when I met Riz because I, I knew he was super talented, but I didn't know if he was Ruben yet until I sat with him. And when I sat with him, I saw this kind of savant-like, very intense. He was really analyzing me, really wanted to like, just get every, every little tiny little detail of how I was thinking. He was, he was sizing me up. Am I, can I trust this guy? Does he know what he's talking about? He was really running some analytics. And um, I loved that because what I saw in that was number one, someone who took themselves very seriously, took the work very seriously. He wasn't fucking around. And number two, he was all about control. And that was exciting. That was really exciting to me because I knew I could take it away from him. Um, <laughs> And, and, and here's the thing, I, you know, Ruben's all about control. Mm. Ruben's written that way. That's why his body needs to be in perfect shape. That's why he makes the smoothies in the morning and he drives the Airstream and he blows the air on the, he's all about control. 
Um, and this movie's gonna, and, and his story is about letting go of that as well. So I thought, shit, this is a, this is a perfect opportunity. And I presented that to Riz right off the bat and he kind of presented it to me. You know, I, it, it was something he wanted as well. And, um, and so this was gonna be crazy. So in that moment, I you know, this was gonna look like eight months of saying no to Hollywood, not doing this, not doing that, not reading other scripts. Who does that, right? Who does that now? No one does that. And especially at that moment in Riz's career when he's getting, you know, that kind of notice and he's in tentpole movies and blah, blah, blah. He did that. But I didn't know he would do that. I just, you know, you can't make someone do that. But that was our agreement. It just turns out Riz actually has integrity. And he actually showed up in Brooklyn and he actually went to a sweaty little room every single day for hours and practice drums. And he actually went to the gym with a guy and worked on his body. And he actually learned ASL every day. Um, there was one day when I woke up to get a coffee in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. And I went, I was just walking to get a coffee. I looked to my right and Riz is sitting there with his sign instructor, Jeremy Lee Stone, and they're having a whole conversation in ASL. And I, I stood and watched this guy I just stood and watched and I just thought this is the best moment of my life, <laughs> you know, watching this guy put this kind of heart without, mm -hmm. without medals or awards or any, like anyone watching, mm -hmm. he was doing it. I, he didn't know I would show up for coffee. He was doing it. And I mean, I just thought this is everything. This is the, this is actually what nobody does you know, and he did it. And then, and then, in, and then in, indeed, when he got to set, I removed all control from him. And in the, and that, you know, I've told the story a couple times, but the, you know, that was the day before shooting. I told him he couldn't see dailies yeah. and, and that turned into this, this real kind of clash again, because he's an artist, because he, he wants things in a certain way. And it was the moment when I said, Riz, I'm not going to be your enabler that he that he started laughing because he's so great because he knows it when he knows it the thing about Riz is great is when he knows it when he sees it when it's true he mm. just he just he he knows it so he just said he laughed we hugged and that was that and he gave into a process of a relinquishment of control which is really exciting fantastic so tell me, I'm, it's not a brief story, but I'm going to ask you to be brief about Paul, just because it is so extraordinary about what his background was. But in the interest of time, because I've done so bad. Hey, I'm such a talker. I told you I wasn't going to give you a yes or no answer. So, so And what? I didn't want one. These are marvelous answers. So tell us quickly about Paul, and then I'm going to uh, turn to some of these questions here. So Paul, you know, the, the brief thing is I had, I had done this again with Paul's role where I needed financing for years and people tempted me. And mm -hmm. I, I did that on the hope and the prayer that there was someone from deaf culture that could inhabit this role. But there's a lot of identities at play within this role. You have a veteran, you have addiction, and you have deafness mm -hmm. and deaf culture. And, you know, finding finding those three in a way that's true is near impossible and i you know it it came late in the game that i got a tape from paul and it was uh paul's a coda which is a child of deaf adults he he his first language is asl so he didn't learn english until he was six 
Uh, he, he fought two tours in Vietnam and he had dealt with serious addiction of his own. He had also been an addiction minister and he had worked in like, it's just ridiculous, the crossover. But then on top of that, on top of that, he's just an extraordinary actor. Mm. He's been acting for 40 years. And I, I really mention that because it, people might take for granted, oh, he just, he just had that character in him, therefore he's good. And that's not the case with Paul. He's a really, he's got chops. I mean, that guy is an actor. You know, so it, it was really just the trifecta of finding someone who could come the way I describe it to actors and think about it myself is just that we have this garden. We all each have our own garden to draw from. And some of those gardens are vast and some are less vast, but the, or more specific. Paul just needed to reach in to mm -hmm. find, you know, reach into his own, whether it was Vietnam or whether it was addiction or whether it was his own experience with his own family and the problems that came from that. It was so rich, just reaching into his own garden and finding all those riches to bring and put on screen. And that's what he did. Yeah. You, you haven't mentioned the one crossover that just blew me away, which is that he's the front man for a deaf metal, uh, black Sabbath tribute, tribute band. Oh, and true. the thing that got me was not that there was a, not that there was a ASL tribute brand, but, but the thing that, that those lyrics needed uh, translating, that that was what might be at the foreground. Anyway, moving on. So I just, I just wanted to say, I mean, first of all, I just want to say that uh, someone says here, uh, Diva says, congrats on your film. I loved watching it so much. Can't wait to see it again. Um, she asks about casting. You've just been talking about that. Um, Adam Young asks, he says, it's a likely question that you, you probably get it a lot, but the subtitles that he didn't realize going in how they were going to work. And he thought it was really clever that it gave the audience a deaf experience. I think it'd be really great for you to talk a little bit about that because I haven't covered it very well yet. And also a little bit about the fight to make that a reality for the, for the uh, theatrical release. Well, so first of all, just to be semantical, they're, ca they're captions, not subtitles. And that, that is a, uh, an important difference um, because, and to, to, be, to be further annoying, it, it's giving the audience a hearing experience within a deaf world. Um, so it, it's, you know, that, that is again about being dogmatic about a first person perspective that when we go into, you know, this movie was made to be watched by hearing and deaf people and hearing and deaf people will watch two different movies. They'll watch the same movie, but have a very different experience watching it because it's made to create a dynamic where hearing people like Ruben are a minority in another culture. You know, they be, we become, we able-bodied or hearing people become the minority and have to kind of contend with that. And so, it's really interesting as an editorial discipline to go into those scenes knowing that if you caption them, they're more interesting yeah. because you get the language, but that the totality of not getting the language is ultimately more interesting and it's more committed. So the way that, the way that we did that, and, and uh, my editor Mikkel is so fantastic, the way we looked at that is that the slide scene 
um, is the exact midpoint of the film to the second. Um, and that actually took months to achieve in the edit. I mean, it was impossible, but we knew it needed to be the midpoint. And, you know, it, anyone who cuts and you guys all do know this, but like, you, you don't just stick it in the middle. It has, the story has to get there so that it naturally falls there. And that that is the midpoint of the film. And at that midpoint, we, something shifts emotionally. And we've spent, the rule for us, not just on the, in the script and in the edit is that the audience can never be smarter than Ruben. Yeah. But, at, and so of course we can't know the ASL that Ruben doesn't know. Um, mm -hmm. That makes us smarter than him. and. But at that midpoint, he becomes smarter than us. Mm -hmm. So suddenly he knows ASL and we don't. Mm -hmm. And suddenly he's making plans and we don't know what the hell they are. Why is he in the office? What's he doing? What's this with the Airstream? What's, what's going on with him? You know, and he gets ahead of us and we have to start to claw. That's part of that language of leaning in again. That's mm -hmm. that thing of like, I'm not getting everything here. Why? What's, what's happening? Oh, oh. Mm -hmm. So... That, that ASL, that not captioning when he doesn't know sign language is very important of a part of creating that engine. Yeah, fantastic. I, I got a question earlier today, actually. This is how prepared some of our audience are. Was uh, um, John Dower actually asked, he, he said he'd love to know how Ruben's character was decided upon and how much was influenced by Riz. And, and he specifically says there was an implicit threat in the damage he might do, given how dominant over Lou he seemed and, and how potentially he might self-damage. And, I, you know, that, that sort of tension of, of a sort of internal violence, if you like. And was it so, so I think he was interested to know, A, how much Riz brought to that and how much that was something you found or had in the script. That, that sort of tension. Yeah, that was all in the script. Um, and, and so, you know, that's always a weird one when you talk about what did Riz bring because he brought everything, but he didn't, he, you know, all of that energy, of course he brought and he found in a specific way, but it's all in the script. He was serving that character. And that character we wrote, my brother and I wrote thousands of, literally thousands of pages with that character. And I think what you're talking about is toxic masculinity. And I think it's interesting to discuss that because it's something that I, I've focused on a lot. And the way I understand toxic masculinity, and I think you alluded to this, Biban, is that it's, um, the, way, the way I understand it as it was in its inception is it's about the way that men, when they act out those roles that they believe are what defines a man, mm -hmm. they become toxic to themselves. They, they, they poison themselves. Mm -hmm. So Ruben never, you know, the idea of him lording over Lou, I mean, he is dogmatically, like consistently really loving to Lou. Mm -hmm. He gets angry, but he turns on himself. He is gonna be a danger. He is going to poison himself. That's really the only, that's the only real threat from Ruben. You know, he'll, he'll never hurt Lou. And as a matter of fact, I think he'd do anything in the world not to hurt her, which is why their last scene is so difficult, you know. So um, difficult. But that idea of toxic masculinity is really at the heart of the film. It's just not in the way that we often talk about toxic masculinity, which I don't think is what that term means. 
It's mm-hmm. not, you know, we always think of anger as something or attack as and poison and toxicity as something outward, but it's actually inward. And I think that's actually what men do. I think yeah. men more, more often than not go inward. Yeah. So, so there's a lovely comment here that, that I've got, and it ends up with a question which you've sort of half answered, but I think you need to hear this because it says, I just love the very end, the silence, the stillness, the acceptance, and the sense of peace that seemed to come from that. To me, stories are about how we learn to be human. And what was so stunning about the end was the sense of acceptance. It called on me as the audience. Mm. Did you design that total absence of sound from the outset or did you come to it in the process of shooting and editing? Oh no, that was from the outset. And that, <laughs> the whole movie is working toward that moment. Um, took a long, took years to find that in the writing. You know, yeah. that, was, that was something, I recently wrote a piece for the LA Times where I kind of talked about this, which I usually don't talk about, frankly, because it's a little personal, but it took years to find it. It was a little bit of a ghost kind of calling to me about my own life, my own then very long-term relationship um, that I knew and we both knew was time to end and we just couldn't deal with. Uh, We couldn't, it was too painful. So there was a literal process of letting go. And part of the reason I couldn't find that end was because I couldn't, I couldn't usher that into my own life for a while. Um, And I kind of had to write the script to do that. And That ending, the idea of silence, the absence of everything being cathartic was so fascinating that it it was such a true north that the whole film was was had to earn it. You know, you had to you had to work your way through that visceral hellscape. You had to be in it in order to actually feel that. And it's wonderful when you have something like that in a movie, because if you listen to the movie, you know, like I always tell everyone working on the film, the movie's God, not me, not the mm-hmm. actors, not anybody else. The movie, if you're listening to the movie, mm-hmm. it's telling you, don't give up on that vision. Don't worry about losing it. Don't worry that it won't be liked. Just trust that moment and earn it. And it was, it was cool to have that. You know, I have to be honest. I have another hour's worth of questions, but we have to stop now. And that seems like such a perfect way to to really stop with the question so I'm going to just end with something that that I said to you at the beginning and and I think uh, I think it's just really interesting in the light of everything you've said which is how does it feel that you held on so tight you were so determined you worked so hard at this vision and then it has been embraced I mean universally embraced and how does that feel? Man, well, it's, it's, it's very encouraging. Excellent <laughs> answer. Very encouraging. I mean. We'll go again. <laughs> it's, 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 you know, yeah, when you trade everything for something like I did in this, with this movie, when you really do, and I let go of a lot to make the movie. And, uh, you know, it's, it's remarkable. There's the whole lot of self in that, that, that joy, that, that kind of reinforcement of that energetic design of life, that symbiosis. But beyond that, it's a lot of the people that put their faith in me. It, like I was talking about Riz's process and all, 
like that was real actual faith, believing in something that didn't exist, that had no, you know, no um, guarantee of anything. And to see them rewarded is the most, is the most gratifying of anything, you know, Paul and Riz and the editor and sound people like they, we, our sound mix was 23 weeks long. They were there, you know, so that to see them get rewarded, that's just, just wonderful. That's, you know what I will, I'll, I'll actually change it. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I just want to congratulate you. It's a marvelous, marvelous film and uh, a wonderful conversation. Have a great run. Have a great run. Thank you so much for great questions. And it's just such a pleasure. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.